Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. Do you want to grab a drink, come and sit yourselves down and we'll try and get started. The kids' work is open if you have um, small children and they'll probably enjoy that more than listening to me. So I would encourage you to push them that way. Okay, welcome to Real Life Church. Um, Especially if you are a visitor here, you are most welcome. It's lovely to see you. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. Um, I'm the leader of the church here, um, and it's great to have you. Um, just a little bit of our background. Real Life Church is in its beginning stages. Um, we've only been meeting like this on a Sunday since September, so it's still very early days for us. Um, and this is kind of inflected in our size and sort of what we're doing, but we're looking to kind of grow and move into the things that God um, has called us to. Real Life Church is made up of a bunch of women, men and women who have um, seen something about the Lord Jesus. He has revealed himself to us, and uh, we believe real life is all about having a relationship with Jesus, about following his model and changing our world um, by the power of Jesus. And uh, we believe God has called us here to be a large, influential, reproducing church. Um, and that's where we're going. And we, we do that by the grace of God, not anything in ourselves, because what God has put before us is far too big for us to um, achieve on our own. Um, and that's what we're doing. At the moment, we run Sunday meetings like this. We also run midweek uh, life groups, small group meetings in homes that if you'd like to get in- involved in, please come and chat to me and I will I'll direct you in the right um, direction for that. This morning, what we're going to start in just a moment, I'm going to be preaching um, from the Bible, carrying on our um, uh, series from Ephesians. The children have got some of their own age-appropriate stuff going on out there in the fishbowl. Um, after a little while, they're going to come back, join us. It's going to get an awful lot noisier. Uh, we're going to worship God together and we'll hope to wrap up about 12, 12, 15 depending on what happens. If you need the toilet at any point, please just go and use them. They're just down this corridor out to the left, um, down the bottom um, there, ladies and gents, just go and use them. If at any point you get the munchies or you want a drink, go and help yourself. I am a primary school teacher by trade. I'm used to 30 people not listening to me regularly and doing what they want. So if you just want to get up and go and get a tea, a coffee and come back, I am fine with that. I can cope. So please do that. Don't just sit there thinking, I'd really like a cuppa right now and you haven't gone and got one. Don't do that. Um, A couple of notices. Uh, First one, next week um, is the 18th. It's Mother's Day. I hope you've all remembered that. Um, Mother's Day next week. We will be meeting here in the hall. We're going to do something slightly differently. We're going to have the children in with us the whole time. Uh, It's going to be a slightly shorter meeting and we're going to do something along the lines of Mother's Day and actually particularly honouring the role of women and uh, all that kind of things. So please come to that. But because we're all going to be in together, it will be slightly more chaotic and noisy, just so you know. Okay? There will be small children who are free-range. Okay, and they will just be everywhere. But we're going to still worship God together, so just, just be aware of that, but it's going to be a fun time uh, next week. All right, then, if you've got your Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible here, we've got a bunch on the chairs. Um, they've got kind of white or black covers, paperback ones. Please use them. If you don't own a Bible of your own, you can take that one away with you. It's our gift to you. Um, So please uh, feel free to do that. What we're going to be looking at is um, we have done thus far, we've done chapter 
1, we've gone, we started to go halfway through chapter 2. What I'm going to do now is take the final section of chapter 2 all in one hit, but I'll just give a quick recap of where we've come from. The beginning of chapter 2, um, those first uh, 10 verses, we took three weeks to go through them and we broke it right down looking at the three sections of that passage. It began with the bad news. I spent a whole week telling you the bad news of our, our sort of condition before, before God, how we were... We were sinners before him, we were condemned, we were enslaved, and everything bad about the human condition, which was applicable to all mankind. Then we had, the next section was the good news, if you were there that week, that was a good week to come, that was the good news of God's actions in Christ that have saved us, and the wonderful news of God. And then last week we looked at um, our response to what God has done in our life. And our response to God saving us is a life of fruitfulness and good works that flow out of God's salvation. It's not something we do to earn God's favour. It's not something that, oh, because, because um, I want God to accept me, I'll be good. It's actually God has accepted me. God has saved me. I'm now in Christ. I am a new creation. I am God's workmanship. And as a result out of that, I work for his glory and I do the good works that he's already prepared for me, which even makes it easy because he's prepared them for you. So even have, you don't even have the effort of actually going to try and think them up. They've been prepared in advance for us to walk into. And so that's wonderful, um, God's action in our life. And if you are a Christian here, that story is true of you. If you've made that commitment, you were once a sinner. You were once alienated and far from God. But God, the grace of God, came into your life. He saved you. Even the faith we used to respond to him was a gift from him, it says in Ephesians 2. Um, and we looked at that, and so we've, we say now we live a life um, that honours him and loves him, and that's actually uh, the purpose statement of our church, <laughs> that we, um, we, we do that. It's all about having a relationship with Jesus, following his model, and then changing the world um, as a result of that. And what we're going to look now in the next section, there are actually two parallel sections, if you read these two bits in Ephesians, but the first bit that we've looked at focuses on the individual What's happened to me, I, personal thing. The section we're going to look on today actually has a corporate element. It's actually we've had the individual, what happens in an individual's life. We're now going to look at the corporate and what happens with us as a people and how God is working in mankind in a more general sense, which has great application for us as generally as individualistic Westerners and we live in an individualistic culture, an individualistic mindset, and we have been... It's the air we breathe pretty much since we've been born. If you've been born and raised in this nation, kind of Western society, this is what, what we're a part of. It's about me, it's about I, it's about my rights and what I need. And, and that's the result. You just have to look at news stories and news things, and it's, it's very self-centred. Very, it's all about me and what I feel, what I want. People give it for reasons for doing things. I wanted this, I wanted it like this. Why marriages break down, all these kind of things. all comes back to an individualistic mindset. And Paul has talked to the Ephesian Christians about what God did in their life individually, but then he immediately jumps onto what does it mean corporately? There's a bigger element. And the danger for us as Western Christians is that we can see the gospel, we can see Jesus as purely a personal thing. My relationship with Jesus, it's all about my time, my prayer life, my Bible reading, me and my, do I feel good, my forgiveness, um, and my relationship with Jesus, and I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and people pray for me, and me, 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 my, 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 which has its place because we all have to have an individual response to Jesus, and that's our responsibility. But that is very much coupled with a corporate dynamic. 
which is something that has is missing from our kind of culture and society with the breakdown of the family, with um, kind of people moving and living in a lot further apart from their immediate family. Go back generations and everyone kind of lived in the same sort of area. Now, I don't know about you, but my family, the nearest are a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour drive away and that's normal. So it's kind of this fragmentation, but it's something that as the church we need to make sure it's on our agenda and on our radar and, we're, and our thinking is aligned with that as well as an individual response and a personal response to Jesus. So let's just read the passage. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 11. I'm just going to read to the end. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, big idea. God has brought Jew and Gentile together in Christ. And we'll look at what that Jew and Gentile is in a moment. This passage talks about peace and reconciliation through Jesus' death. It's all focused around Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection. And it talks about peace and reconciliation. And there is a horizontal, if you will, element which is reconciliation between men, mankind, between men and other men, women and other women, that kind of uh, horizontal dynamic between the relationship between humans. And there is a vertical dynamic in terms of mankind's reconciliation and relationship with God. So there's two things working here, and we'll look at both. The horizontal, what God has done on that level, reconciling men together, but also on the vertical, God, uh, man, God has reconciled man to himself. And as he's done that, he has created a new community, And it is not simply a kind of a development from Old Testament, a sort of um, Israel. It is a new creation, a new divine community that transcends what God had done in Israel and it's something bigger and greater and deeper. And it brings all mankind into it. The the Old Testament, God had a people, but always within the centre of that was the promise that it would go wider. It originally started with a man, Abraham, grew to a nation, Israel, And that's where God had set his heart upon. Not because they were better than anyone else. He actually specifically said that. You're not bigger, you're not more impressive, you're not greater than any other nation. I have just chosen you. The the love and the heart of God. But even within that, the prophets, there there was a promise that that one day would go wider and the nations would be touched by the power of God. And, um, 
Paul is outlining this today. The structure of what we're going to look at in the passage. The first, we're going to look at where you were, looking back where you were. Um, God's going to talk to the Gentile readers of his letter. Actually, this is what it was like for you. Then we're going to look at what Jesus has done, which is the centerpiece of the passage. And then looking forward, it will be where we are right now. That's the final part of the passage, where we are now, where we're going. So, number one, where you were. This actually parallels the previous passage because it starts with not particularly happy news. So, begins therefore. So this is following on because of the individual work God has done in people's lives. As a result of that, this has a corporate effect. So that's what Paul's doing. That's the therefore. We've, we've just talked about, you've just gone through, this has happened in your individual life. Therefore, there is a corporate, a wider result of that. And he starts by saying, remember. Remember what has happened. And the point of remember isn't that people had forgotten it's, he's saying remember to bring it to mind so you can appreciate it. I was, trying, I was thinking about this this morning as I was looking for, through this, thinking what does that look like? And I could, the only thing I could come up with was my marriage vows, which Mel and I will be married 12 years in a, about a few weeks in the middle of April. And that 12 years ago, Mel and I made commitments uh, where we spoke our vows to each other on our wedding day. And if someone said to me, remember them, I wouldn't have forgotten them, but I'd, I'd, I'd have to bring them to mind and therefore appreciate them in a deeper way because I've actually suddenly brought them to my attention and thought about them. In the day-to-day life, it's not something I regularly remember every morning, the vows I made to Melanie on our wedding day. It's kind of you live them out. And in the same way, Paul says, remember what happened, not because they've forgotten, but remember where you were because by doing that, you appreciate your present that much more. And it's the same for us. If we remember where we were before God saved us, we appreciate our salvation that much more. And he's saying to these guys, remember what has happened. Remember where you were. And he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. And let's, I just want to just kind of let's talk about what this actually means. Um, this is, um, the Jews referred to gen- Gentiles were anyone who wasn't a Jew. So if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. Everybody else on planet Earth was a Gentile. Now the Gentiles wouldn't actually refer to themselves as Gentiles, and most of us would fit in that camp. They might refer to themselves as Romans, or Greeks, or whatever else. But from a Jewish mindset, you're a Gentile, and we're Jew, and that's the only, that's the only definition they needed, Jew and Gentile. And there, there, I don't think there is a kind of a modern equivalent of the cultural divide that this produced. The Jew and Gentile cultural divide was absolutely massive. It was, it was probably the, one of the biggest in history in terms of separating peoples. And the, the reason it was was because it, it touched every area of life and society. The Jews were separate for a religious reason. They, um, they knew that the coming Messiah, God's chosen, would come through their people. That had been promised by the prophets. They knew that they held um, the, the knowledge of the one true God. He was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. That was a God. So they hold that. So there was a religious separateness from everybody else because they held that. They held that and they knew the Messiah would one day come through the line of David, one of their kings, and through that he would establish God's kingdom on earth. Now, they didn't fully understand the implications of what that means um, in the wider sense, but they held that and they knew that and everybody else outside was, was outside that. So there was a massive religious difference. There was a social and cultural difference between the Jews and the Gentiles based on things like the dietary laws, that what they could eat, what they couldn't eat, um, the festivals they celebrated, like the Passover festival. It was a Jewish festival, um, talking about God's redemption of them from Egypt. It was the, um, the holiness laws 
what made them clean and unclean. I'm reading through the Bible in a year and you kind of start in the Old Testament and I've just waded through Leviticus. Okay? And if you've ever read Leviticus, the, 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 the holiness laws are just mind-boggling in their, their exactness and their detail. And they go on for chapter after chapter after chapter to point us back to the wonderful holiness of God and what his expectations are. But for a people, they held these and it made them different to all the other nations around them. Then we also have, oh, then finally, the last one there, is um, they had circumcision as a physical sign. A physical sign of separateness that actually we are, we're going to come on to that later, of we're different to you. And the final one there was a racial difference. And that was they, Jews could trace their ancestry and their bloodline back to Abraham ultimately, but it went through Jacob, not Esau. They were twins. But actually, our bloodline goes through Jacob, who actually had his name changed to Israel. And then behind that, you've got Isaac, but it's Isaac and not his half-brother Ishmael, and then finally to Abraham. So there is very, a very strong racial difference. We are descended from these individuals, nobody else. And so if you line all these up one after the other, division between Jew and Gentile was absolutely massive. And the physical difference was that of circumcision, which is what Paul comes on to. He talks about the circumcision and the uncircumcision, just effectively saying Jew and Gentile, one is circumcised, one isn't. And it was a physical sign of the covenant God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis. So by the time Paul is writing this, you've got thousands of years have passed of this being a Jewish sign that separates them from Gentiles. Um, and um, he, it actually just it signified that the Gentiles' estrangement from God. You, you don't know the one true God because of this sign. But this is how Paul describes it. He says there's a circumcision, but he says, which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, so what Paul is doing now is the circumcision is merely an external thing, it's a physical thing, and it's done by human hands. It's, it's a human sign that signifies something that God's done. He's, he's contrasting that this is purely a human act, the act of circumcision, when actually he's now going to go on talking about something that is an act of God, which is something bigger and greater actually. Circumcision in itself is not enough. We've already looked at in the past few weeks that actually it's grace and faith alone that gets us to God and they're both from him anyway. So it's, he's, he's going to start undermining it and he's saying actually what, what you've had is the Jews have had an external sign but that doesn't have an internal change. An external sign doesn't change you internally and you need an internal change which only God can bring about. And the Old Testament prophets actually hinted that God one day God would circumcise your hearts. So you've got this outward sign, which but actually God's, God's kind of, his end game is I want to deal with your hearts. I want to do some act in your heart that changes you. Because if the internal is changed, the external would be changed as a result. And he talks about that, and even in Colossians 2, Paul talks about that actually, that we're circumcised in Christ, not through a physical um, act. And he's saying, remember that, look back to that um, in the past, and actually say, actually, what that was is not... Um, is not enough in and of itself. And he, he points back to the, um, as, as we read on, the, that the, um, the Gentiles' kind of um, predicament, they were outside the covenant of God, they were outside what he had done, and it says here, there's a list of things, it said they were separated from Christ, they were alienated 
from the Commonwealth of Israel. So they weren't just outside. There was an alien nation, which means there was, there was kind of animosity between them. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. Covenants is plural. So it talks about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all the Old Testament covenants. They were not part of what God was doing. They were without hope and they were without God. That kind of verse ends. And so it's actually, you've got the, 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 um, the Gentiles were separate from God in every possible way, separated from God's people, outside God's, that's where they were. That was the kind of where they'd ended up. And so it wasn't going well for them. And then we move on to what Jesus has done. Verse 13 starts, but now. Very similar to the previous passage which started, had the bit that started, but God. Jesus has come and dealt with the problem. You were way off. Paul is saying to his Gentile readers, Paul's a Jew, saying to his Gentile readers, your predicament was terrible. Very similar to the beginning of chapter 2 where it talks about our every man's position before God but he's talking particularly about Gentiles. Your position is terrible. You're in a bad place. You're alienated from God. You're outside the covenant. You're not in God's people. But now a dramatic change has occurred. Christ has done something. He is the focus. It's all about Jesus. That's kind of one of the things I want us to get here as a church. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus. Anyone ask any questions? It's Jesus is the answer in church circles, okay? Because ultimately, it all comes back to him. However you, you, you do it round and round, it comes back to Jesus. He's the one. And it's all about Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul will be talking about Jesus' reconciling work. He talks about his blood, his death on the cross, him rising from death. It all centres on that. That is the centrepiece of the Christian faith. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross and all that that means. And he's, the division between Jew and Gentile was so great, so vast, so big that actually it took Christ's reconciling work on the cross to bridge it. Because that's what it took for for God to bring these people together was Jesus' death on the cross. And that shows how deep the division um, between them was. And what we look at as we move on here is we see the horizontal piece first. The horizontal, what God has done between men to bring them together, particularly Jew and Gentile. And it says there in... um, uh, but now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's a reference to Christ's death on the cross. For he himself is our peace. The he there is Jesus. And this theme of peace and reconciliation runs all the way through it. Um, and the whole idea of peace, uh, we might think of peace in quite a narrow sense. No one's fighting. There are no wars going on. But the Jewish idea of peace was vast. It was a, a peace that basically touched all areas of life. Um, shalom. It was that peace of God. And it can be used in many different ways. It was used uh, to describe just harmony between people, people getting on, so good relationships. Um, The gospel itself is referred to as the gospel of peace because it brings that. God himself is referred to the God of peace. Even in the Old Testament, we know the coming Messiah, if we read the Christmas passages, Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace. I think we even sing about that at Christmas in one of the carols. So this peace is why Christ is described as the mediator of our peace. He gives peace to believers. It says even in prayer that um, uh, the peace of God that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds. I think that's Philippians, isn't it? The end of Philippians. So this idea of peace touching everything is is a, a, a very strong kind of 
Jewish sort of thinking, but actually has, in God's thinking, is wider for believers and it touches every area of our lives. And actually Christ is bringing about that peace in our lives and ultimately it will be when everything's reconciled to him in heaven, it will be what, what reigns forever. Um, and in the meantime, we are to be ministers of that and walk in that. But in particularly in the horizontal dimension, the biggest form of peace was bringing the Jew and the Gentile together. And it says there that he has made peace between Jew and Gentile. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. That's what it said. There's an ebolis, there's a wall of hostility between the two of them. And the hostility would have come through these, the holiness laws, the diamonds, which bring separation from people. I mean, the mildest way we could probably understand it here is when the vegetarian comes to dinner. It's funny, like, oh my goodness. No, think about it. You've got, to, you've, you've got to change everything and how you cook to cater for them. Imagine if you had the Jew coming to dinner and actually think you've got to apply to all these dietary laws or they won't even come. And actually, there would even be a point where actually they wouldn't come into your house. People, Peter had that problem in Acts when he went to Cornelius' house and God said, go in there and preach to them. And he said, I can't even go in there because they're Gentiles. I will be unclean. God said, go in there. And Peter obedient man went in there but there was this division this wall of hostility all these holiness codes and these laws and Christ broke it down abolished it and the way he did it was he came and he fulfilled it he fulfilled it perfectly he fulfilled the law perfectly died the perfect death he was the ultimate sacrifice they'd had all these sacrifices over the years over the centuries Christ came as the perfect lamb fulfilled the law perfectly he fulfilled his moral requirements um, the, the kind of the religious requirements even required the requirements for sacrifice in himself so when he said it is finished on the cross it was all done and dusted the temple curtain was torn no longer was there like one man the high priest once a year who go behind the curtain it was suddenly open to all male, female, Jew and Gentile could all come with him. So Christ has broken it down in himself and he's abolished the wall that would be a separation between the Jew and the Gentile. So the holiness stipulations no longer need to be followed because we are holy in Christ. That's why we've even looked at that in the beginning of Ephesians. Because we are in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ. We stand holy before God because we bear Christ's holiness so we can come freely before his throne to pray, to make requests. We don't have to go to a place. We don't have to go to a, you know, a city, to a temple to make our sacrifices. We've had the sacrifice. We can go direct to God wherever we are because Christ has brought that, he fulfilled it, and it's now broken, it's gone. Those, those parts of the law are no longer binding on us, which is why there's no, no one's going to die today, no animal's going to die today, just to make us acceptable to God, because it's all done in Christ. We, we can come before him. But just it's worth pointing out as a caveat, the moral requirements of the law are still in force. Um, Christ said that even when he taught on the Sermon of the Mount. He actually raised the bar, didn't he, in about adultery and theft and anger and those kind of things. So we are still by um, the moral requirements on how we live, but the holiness code and the stipulations and the dietary laws have been done away. Because he said that to Peter when Peter had the vision of all the animals. And God said to him, go and eat them. And Peter said, I'm a Jew, I don't eat those things, not since my youth. God says, you can't call something unclean that I've called clean. And so you eat them. And so it all changed at that point. And the result of that abolishing was it says there that he would create 
one new man in Christ and reconcile them to God. So we look at the creating, one new man. If we remember last week, it was verse 10, it talked about God's workmanship, we were a new creation in him. He's actually saying it's not just us as individuals who are new creations because we've become Christians. He's created a new man, plural, bigger, in him. There is one man in Christ. We all come into that, one mankind, not, not, no longer separation from Jew and Gentile, and both of them are reconciled to God. There is a new corporate identity. There is no longer a separation based on racial lines, on cultural lines, on social lines, on dietary lines, on festival lines, or holy days. There's nothing that separates man. Everyone stands before God the same at the foot of the cross. The ground is level, people say it also. There's no up or down. There's no first or second class. We all stand. And that was God's plan. We've looked at that right at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 10. God's plan was to bring all things together in himself and sum them up in Christ. And that's what he's doing. He's broken down these barriers that Jew and Gentile would come together in Christ. And, and the, there are many who miss that If you read the stories of Jesus, you read through the Gospel, there were those who saw it, there were those who followed, the disciples and many others. But then you get people like the Pharisees, who were the holiest of holy people, who followed the law to the nth degree, and then added a whole bunch of other laws to make sure they followed the main laws. But they missed who Jesus was. They missed it, and they ended up killing him. Um, as a result. But God has broken down it and we have one new man, one new community brought together in him. And the result of that, or the, the, what makes that possible is the fact that he's reconciled man to God. Those couple, verses 16 and 17, it's actually we've made one new man who are reconciled to God. We cannot be reconciled to one another, to Gentile, any relationship, if we're not first reconciled um, to God. And we can only have this horizontal piece if the vertical piece is sorted out, if we actually have a relationship with him. And if we read it, what it says, um, uh, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the hostility between the peoples, um, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you afar off and peace to those who are near. That's just a reference to the preaching of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. If you read the book of Acts, it starts in Jerusalem, it starts with the Jews, it starts at Pentecost. Peter stands up, preaches um, the, the good news to Jews from all over the kind of the empire, if you will. 3,000 saved, or 3,000 men are saved, women, children. The, the, the church then explodes in Jerusalem, it then pushes out into Samaria, and suddenly you've got the hated Samaritans who were outside the covenant, they're coming in, and then suddenly it breaks into the Gentiles. Cornelius, the Roman soldier, and suddenly it's gone out everywhere. So this peace was first preached to the Jew, but then also to the Gentile, and that was always God's way of dealing it. So what Christ has done through his action is abolished that way, but brought all men, women together in himself and reconciled them. Now where we are now, if we move on, it says that through him, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we've got the, we've got the whole working there, the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity here. There is one God. He is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, and each person is fully God. And we've got them all at work there. Through him, Christ, we have access by one spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, to the Father. That's the result of what Jesus has done. We 
are full of the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ and as a result we can access our Father in heaven. We look particularly at um, being adopted into his children at the beginning when we started looking at Ephesians about what it means to have God as our Father and the kind of the life-changing effects that could have on us. And so in Christ we've been pulled in, we have access to God and then it starts to describe what it's like for us. We are no longer strangers and aliens, we're no longer outsiders, no longer foreigners, we're no longer people who kind of don't understand what's going on, who are, you shouldn't be around, but we are fellow citizens. And citizenship for them would point to Roman citizenship. It was one of the ultimate thing in the empire. You wanted to be a Roman citizen because what came with being a Roman citizen were rights, protection. Um, you were kind of a cut above others who weren't Roman citizens. And you see that if you read the book of Acts. Paul himself was a Roman citizen, and it gave him wonderful rights. There's one point when he was, Silas were flogged in Philippi, and then he said to the guys who did it, do you know I'm a Roman citizen? To which point they freaked out because they just flogged some guy without a trial who was a Roman citizen who could call on the might of the empire and those guys would, would be executed as a result. And you can see them there, they're trying to get them out of prison quietly. And Paul says, no, you will come and escort me out of prison in front of everyone because I'm a Roman citizen and I have rights and you've broken those rights. We see it later when the, he's in Jerusalem and they're trying to kill him and they're, they're trying to sort of put, accuse him and he just says, I appeal to Caesar. Because he's a citizen, he has the right to appeal to the head of the state the emperor, and the rest of Acts is him actually making his way to Rome. And so becoming a Roman citizen is kind of, it's a big deal. Uh, One of the guys in Acts said, I paid a vast sum of money to become a citizen, so I got those protection, those rights. Paul said, I was that by birth. I was none of those. And it says here, we have become fellow citizens and saints with the others. So we are all, if you're a Christian, we've all come into this. We all get those rights of being a citizen in God's kingdom. And we're, we're all there. We haven't earned it. We, we've received it. It comes um, to us. And then it goes on to do a kind of, that's a political, there's a family imagery. We're all part of God's household. God is our father. We've already looked at that. Um, and we all come together. Um, and so we are brothers and sisters together under one father in a family. And I don't know what it's like with you. I had a family day yesterday and there were three generations of my family all together in the same house. And it was loud and noisy, but it was fantastic. We had grand, great, you know, grandparents and grandsons and children and mums and dads all together and we had a wonderful day and there was a bond that held us together because we're family. I remember thinking at one point, what would it be like if we weren't family? It would be a different dynamic. But the fact that we're family and we're connected by something, blood, um, means what one, we're stuck with each other, but that's not a bad thing. Um, but actually these are my family I love these guys and I love being with them and enjoying time with them and we've been pulled into this family of God and we therefore are brothers and sisters um, with one another and with all other believers all around the world and from those from all time we are connected with them and the reality is the connection I have with other believers is stronger than a connection I would have with blood family because that's, that's the power of God working and this, my, my kind of connection with other believers will last into eternity. Um, and that, that, so that's a big, it's kind of something to just ponder on and actually think we're part of the household of God. We are brothers and sisters 
uh, with one another, which means we, we are there, we love them, we work with them, and we seek to move forward. So we're part of God's household, and this is built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. That's a reference to New Testament apostles and prophets who, who taught the word, book of Acts, who helped build the church um, in the early days. And then it talks about built on the, um, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was where everything lined up with Building a big building, you start with the cornerstone and from the cornerstone you then build out the walls and you know they're going to be straight if they're lined up with the cornerstone. And the cornerstones were invariably big to make sure everything kind of lined up with it. But Because if the cornerstone was right, everything else lined up and everything else worked. And Jesus Christ was the cornerstone, he's our cornerstone. And because of that, everything else built on him will work up and line up because we'll be lined up with Christ himself. And we are now being brought into this privileged position in whom the whole structure... Uh, as being joined together grows into a holy temple in, in, in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God by his spirit. So what we have, we have kind of a building image, an organic image all mixed into one there. It's all a building, a temple being built, but there's a kind of a livingness to it with bits being joined together. And that, that works out perfectly for us because that living building that he's talking about is us. We're it. It's no longer a physical building like the temple in Jerusalem. That's gone. Or any physical building around the world, church building of any kind. Actually, the building he's talking about is you and me. And we are being built together as a dwelling place for God. God's dwelling place used to be in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, right in the middle. One place on the entire planet where God said, I will put my presence. It was originally on the mountain, then in the tabernacle, then in the temple, but there was one place I'll put it. And occasionally it went on other individuals for specific jobs and tasks, prophets, judges, kings. Occasionally there would be a bit of that, a bit of this. But all through the Old Testament there's this echo that actually one day it will be poured out. One day it will be poured out on all men and women, young and old, they will all receive my spirit and my presence will be everywhere on all people, all flesh, come to Pentecost and it happens. The Spirit is poured out and it starts to flow out into the nation. So we are now that holy... We don't need another one. We don't need anything rebuilt in Jerusalem. We don't need it built anywhere else. We need us. We need people who are full of God's Spirit because we are the ones who are who are the living temple that is being built to God. Which means, one thing that, that, that it's living, but one thing is it's actually not finished. It won't actually be finished till he comes back and gets everyone. And so there is a kind of under construction that as we add and grow, this church and every other kind of church, men and women get added to it and it grows. There's always that. It's being built. It's being built into a place where God dwells and um, God is honoured bit by bit. Okay, let me wrap this up. What are some of the implications for us? Well, the implications for us is that as we read that and we, we look at that, Jew and Gentile... Um, divisions which have been abolished in Christ, to be honest, don't have a huge lot of implication for me right here and right now. Don't know many Jews, to be perfectly honest. Most people I hang with and I've known all my life are Gentiles. So what does that mean to us? What it means for us is no race, no ethnicity, no cultural um, background is better than any other. They've all been abolished and the one that they focused on there was the biggest one, so if that one's been done, everything else has been done, is that particular group is better than any other one before God. We all stand level before God, which means for us, when we look at ourselves and we look at those around us, actually we all stand equal before God. 
These two, chapter 2, if you read that, that should, that should hammer home to you because we've all started in the same place. We all needed Christ to come and save us and we've all been put into him together uh, and there's no hierarchy in there. Um, and the only way to truly embrace this diversity or to, to embrace other cultures is through the cross of Christ. No other way will work because only the cross of Christ deals with the problem. And the problem is our alienation from God, our sin, and only he can really deal with that root. And so we need to recognise that no one's better than anyone else and always come back to the foot of the cross. Foot of the cross, say, because of you, this is possible, Christ. And because of you, I can love others. For you, I can, I can accept others who are different to me. And that's always a difficult one, to accept others who are different. There's also the, thing we need, the implication is that there is a corporate dynamic to this. You cannot do this on your own. One of the things, one of my personal things, you know, I don't know if you have bugbears, hobby horses, soapboxes that you get on. One that, that, that pushes me to violence um, when it really niggles me is, is Christians who think they can exist outside the, the church. I can feel my fist clenching even when I think about it. It's this, because God has saved me, individual, personal, I don't need anybody else. I can, I can be on my own. Now, I appreciate some people are outside of church because they've been hurt or damaged, a bad experience. Yeah, I can appreciate that. But a conscious choice to leave the community that God has put you into and made you part of and connected you to is just an absolutely... It's contrary to the Bible in every way. All the images that we read about in the New Testament about the body. You know, Paul says you're like a body. You're all different bits, but you're all one body. You know, if you cut part of your body off and left it, oh yeah, my finger can survive on its own, it would shrivel and die. And we need to embrace it. It's a corporate dynamic. We're Western Christians and it's individual, but actually it must be expressed in a corporate way. We are it. The only way we are going to reach maturity in crisis together, which frankly, if you look around, is really quite scary. But that's the way God set it up. He said, I've set you up as a people Plural. God always wanted a people. He often starts with individuals, but they always go into a people. They always multiply. They always get somewhere, and there are many of them. God, more and more and many. Which means we, as believers, whether you're a regular here or a guest, you need to be in a community of believers. That's where you need to be, because that's where the Bible says you are. I think there are lots of practical reasons I could give you, like, you know, it keeps your faith going, da da da. But I think I'll start with God says you should do it. After that, everything else is just academic. God says you do it. He, he knows that's what he's built you and that's what you've designed for. You're designed to be part of a family and a community, which is what we're trying to build here. And so these are some implications as we read this for us to actually say we need to take these seriously. And uh, as we kind of finish, I've got a little bit of homework for us, but as I, as I put, I've put this together, I thought, what does it... Where do I want to go with this? And I just, I'll be honest with you, a few things. I really struggled and I wrote down some things and I thought, Mel, I gave my sermon to Mel and said, what do you think? And she said, I think you just need to be honest at the end. We're on a journey as a church and we're, we've just started and we have decades ahead of us um, before Jesus kind of calls us all home and a new generation takes on. And I know that reading things like that challenges me in the area of actually accepting others who are different from me. People who are um, culturally different, socially different, racially different, academically different, every kind of difference is our. I, I get on best with people who look like me and talk like me, I'll be honest. 
And so pushing out of that is harder. And we're on a journey, and I know where the journey begins, and I know where the journey ends, but the bit in the middle is a little bit hazy to me. The journey begins at the foot of the cross where everyone stands and everyone is equal and everyone has to put their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And the end is Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, where it says there was a throne and before that throne there was a multitude that couldn't be numbered. And in that multitude was a representative from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every people group. And I think, fine, that's where we're going as a church and this is where I start, at the foot of the cross, and I keep walking. But I don't know how to get there. And I look at having moved to a city with its diversity and culture, which is, is staggering. Um, I grew up in a village, you know, a few thousand people. I went to university in Bristol to train to be a teacher. Freaked the heck out of me, I couldn't see the stars. Seriously, there was too much light pollution. The stars had gone. Who stole the sky? I had to go out kind of to the edge of the city where they had a place called the Death of Bristol just to see the stars so I didn't freak out because I, I kind of got claustrophobia just being in this city and it's all hills and built up. Um, and then moving here, being a um, primary school teacher and doing supply work, I've gone to so many different schools which are made up so differently from so many different areas of the city. I've seen a diversity that I've never experienced before. And I'm thinking, as we build Real Life Church here, that reflects the area and the city we're part of. I want it to look like the city that it's a part of. If we grow numerically and we fill the hall and we all look the same, we've failed. If we all look the same, we all speak the same, we all dress the same, something's gone wrong somewhere. There needs to be diversity in age, there needs to be diversity in background, in language, in race, in culture, in the experiences we've had as a people need to be different because that's what expresses the wonderful grace of God amongst us. If we're all clones, something's gone wrong. And if that happens, you can take me out and shoot me because I've, something's gone wrong, I've, I've led you the wrong way. And I don't want that. That's where I want to go. And that's my heart. And I've been looking at this and praying and thinking, God, how do we, how do we move that way? And I haven't got a sort of plan, do this, this and this and we'll be fine. I just don't know. But I hear my heart, that's where I want to go. I don't want us to all be the same. I want it to represent where we are, the diversity we are um, and what we're going to do. And so all I can suggest for you for now, if you're here among us, is get involved in community, get involved with our life groups. We're about to multiply our life group, so we'll have two. So come along, get stuck in, meet people, become part of our community, find out what we're really like, which will scare you, but then we'll find out what you like, you're like and that will scare us. But we'll get on through it by the grace of God and, and help us move forward and build this community that expresses something of the wonderful diversity of God. I also want to recommend a book. Now, it's a bit strange recommending a book because I'm literally only halfway through it, but it's been that good, so I think I'm happy to represent it. And it's by a guy who I've read lots of his work, so I'm, I'm happy to. It's called Bloodlines. It's by a guy named John Piper. And it's particularly about um, the whole area of race and how the cross and the Christians should respond to that. And I'm this way through and I'm just being, I'm being challenged and my mind is being kind of provoked in how I react, how I think. And if it's just a book that I would encourage you just to have a read as we walk on this journey and decide where we're going to go. Okay, so that's just to look into. Keep looking at this stuff in Ephesians. Um, I think the kids are going to come back in soon. I'm going to pray uh, and we're going to finish. So if you want to bow your eyes, heads. Lord Jesus, 
I want to thank you that you broke down that dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Lord, I want to thank you that you broke down the wall of hostility between you and us and you came and saved us, Lord, and we stand before you together, Lord. I want to recognise where we are on the journey, recognise where we want to go, where I want to take us, Lord, and I say, God, build your church in this place. Let us express something of your diversity, your love, your grace, something of the city in which we meet, uh, something of your wonder, Lord. God, let us not be all the same. Lord God, let us embrace that is different and love it for what it is. Um, Lord Jesus, all under you and in you and for you and for your glory. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.